Hello, I'm Justin Wheeler, and welcome to this episode of Nonstop Nonprofit. Hard as we try, sometimes the individual gets lost in our fundraising efforts. Beth Fisher is one fundraiser working to change that where she can. Beth is the Chief Advancement Officer at Mel Trotter Ministries, leading fundraising, development, and donor stewardship for an organization that's been around and growing for over 100 years. In her previous life in software sales, Beth's superpower was seeing her customers' needs and selling targeted solutions. So when she took the reins at MTM, she naturally turned to her clients' needs, providing them not just with three hots and a cot, but dignity as well. Beth quickly recognized that her fundraising efforts also benefited from that mindset. Treating donors as individuals was her key to fundraising success. Let's dive in. It is your number one priority to ensure that your business can continue to deliver on its mission, whether it's this year, next year, and beyond. So we're creating this inclusive environment, building between diverse communities to ensure that our young people can thrive. I'm always so baffled when I when I do webinars, there's always somebody at the end who raises their hand and says, I'm the development director, should I have access to the budget? I'm always like, yes, you've got to know that. The best thing you can ever do as a nonprofit leader is spend as much money as possible on your story then you're doing it wrong okay that is unacceptable and that is not the way to run a board the best thing that we can do is just raise as much money as possible and then give it to the people around the world if you're going to be sustainable you have to have a multi-channel strategy to reach all of these different generations of donors however they want to be reached one of the principal values that we carry as an organization is to lift grace over guilt. And we believe that grace is the greatest agent for change that anyone can ever experience. We all need each other in terms of other nonprofits working together to solve things. The more nonprofits can give their donor base that experience of the impact that's being made on the ground level, there's nothing else you have to give someone. This is Nonstop Nonprofit. Hey, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to the episode today. Uh, very excited for our guest, Beth Fisher. Beth, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about uh, all things fundraising. Before we jump into that, I'd love it if you could share a little bit with our guests a little bit more about your nonprofit and the role at the organization. Sure. So I work for Mel Trotter Ministries, and our mission statement is to demonstrate the compassion of Jesus for anyone experiencing hunger and homelessness in West Michigan. So I'm located in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, by title, I'm the Chief Advancement Officer. So I have a team of about 18 people. Fundraising rolls up through me, so development and then communication and call center and volunteers. And I'm sure there's more. This is why I'm gray. You know, this is like the hardest <laughs> work I've ever done in my entire life, but so well worth it. Love it. <laughs> What, what makes it uh, the, some of the hardest work that you've done? Oh, boy. Well, prior to this, I came from uh, the corporate world. I was in corporate sales and marketing for 25 years. I uh, loved it. I sold software and consulting services for business process improvement. And I volunteered here at the ministry. Just I was teaching devotions. And so I knew of the organization. And I was really having a hard time when I would show up here every week to volunteer. And I would kind of watch how they're sort of fundraising. I'm looking at their CRM over people's shoulders. I'm like, oh, what? Not my place, right? Until I came on staff and I'm like, now it's my place. So like all bets are off. Um, it makes it hard just given that, right? Like um, I'm a high D on the disc. I'm a three on the Enneagram. I'm like, let's get some stuff done. And to me, 
I've always sort of had this rebel sort of archetype. And I was always, you know, from the time I can remember, little, little, little girl, I was like, this doesn't make any sense in the world. These injustices in the world don't make sense to me. How do we fix them? And, you know, it's just hard work because it matters so much. It's, you know, manufacturing and for profit and commerce is great, but widgets are not people, you know? And so I just feel like uh, the work that we do matters so much because we are talking about human beings whose lives need some help and some transformation. And so the important work of the business behind the scenes feels harder to me because the outcome is heavier to me. Yeah. Very interesting. You know, I, it resonates with me. It's it's kind of the inverse where I spent my first 15 years of my career in the nonprofit space, uh, starting and building nonprofit organizations, and then uh, start, started fundraise about seven years ago, selling software to nonprofits, helping them modernize and accelerate their fundraising. And so it's somewhat of an inverse story. But, you know, I think what I love about your story is sort of the what you've discovered, right, is there's ways to optimize this organization because it's it's doing some of the most important work, helping homelessness in a Grand Rapids area, and it needs to be optimized so that we can make more impact. So I love sort of that enthusiasm. More nonprofits need that sort of leadership because I think there's a lot more impact could be created as a result of that. Something that you mentioned that I thought was super interesting was was your corporate background and kind of the the transformation that you thought you could bring to the nonprofit because of, of that background. Can you maybe unpack that a little bit more? What were what were some of the like low-hanging fruit or some of the more obvious areas to really tackle as you got started at Yeah, I love that you called it low-hanging fruit. My team makes fun of me because I use that cliche frequently around here. I'm like, you guys, this is so obvious, right? Like, why are we not doing this? It's just completely, it will just transform everything that we're doing if we just start here. Because again, it is low-hanging fruit, as you said. So one was budget. And, and so I had the communication budget and the development budget handed to me and we had a former CRM, we used to use Blackbaud, uh, 17 years here at the mission. And I obviously coming into a new role, there had been previous turnover. And I said, great, how does anybody know how much money revenue they're bringing in? Like, well, we don't, I, go, I don't understand that. There's no way to track something that we can't see data on. This is just, again, low hanging fruit, sort of bare bones minimum. And I, t I knew that in order to put in a new software program, because I had sold software for 25 years, that I have to justify it financially. So I looked at the budgets and I thought, nobody's questioning this. And again, it wasn't like people here didn't understand that or didn't have the wherewithal to do it. It was more of a capacity issue, right? We were just sort of operating mm -hmm. as many of us do in an understaffed manner, um, doing the best we can do, prioritizing. And unfortunately, like looking at these sort of fine uh, details was not a priority. It was just like, this is fine. We have a CRM. Let's just go. I looked at it and I thought, no, why are we paying somebody in Hawaii to administer the CRM. This dude's kicking it in Hawaii. We're in the Eastern time zone. That's my first red flag. You know, we're paying him twice as much as we paid our internal DBA. And so then there was a lot of sort of when things would go wrong, easy finger pointing, which is, well, I thought he did it. And I thought your person did it. I'm like, I'm done. I don't have time for drama. I don't want to hear about this. I want results. So I immediately got rid of the third party person who was administering the system. I went to our DBA and said, this is like kind of your job. So the JD says, let's you be a DBA and provided training and so forth. We got rid of hosting. So immediately we had a salary gone. We got rid of the hosting situation. And then I said, and on top of that, this system is not doing what we need to do. Let's do an investigation. Um, so there were other um, credit card charges, the whole thing. So we just started to look at it. The low hanging fruit was operationally, what are we doing here? And then it was staffing, right? And so once I said, we need workflow, we need automation, we need to work smarter, not harder. Because right now, as I look around, and this is not to sound disparaging on purpose, uh, but why are we being glorified thank you card writers? There's so much more about being in a relationship than being reactive. 
Let's go be proactive. Let's find mm. the people that care about what we're doing. Let's make sure that we're marketing accordingly, that we're telling them what we do around here to make sure they care about it, right? If they don't know, how can we blame them, mm. right? This is on us. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, the, the really focusing on the storytelling aspect of an organization's mission is is absolutely critical to, you know, growing and scaling an, an organization. I'm curious because as someone that spent a lot of time in sales and in, in corporate sales, was there anything that like you borrowed from your experience as a salesperson uh, that translated well into fundraising, like specifically in building relationships with donors or you know, I know you're not selling the organization's cause necessarily, but you are selling impact and uh, getting people bought in and, and so forth. So just kind of curious if there's anything uh, from your sales experience that also really translated nicely to your new role in Yeah, in I actually think all of it. I don't think any of it was wasted, right? Because again, sales is about relationship. It's about saying, um, this is how we can make something better. In my former years, it was a process improvement within an organization. Uh, here it is, how can I help make the lives of donors better as we collectively help make the lives of our guests better. And so there's that mm. reciprocity, right, in relationship. And so it is really selling the cause. It is selling something. It's basically, and I tell people when I teach sales and marketing classes, I'm like, we're always selling. I would go to college campuses here and I'm talking to kids who probably don't want to be there. I'm like, you guys, how many of you like sales? None of them raise their hand. And I said, well, but you all sell, right? And like, none of us do. I said, well, did you just try and get a date the other night? Like that's selling, you're right. You're trying to sell who you are and why somebody should care about you. What are you interesting? Are you on Like you're selling something always. And so for me, it's about yeah. how do we get the message out? Because messaging is really, it's storytelling and sales. Absolutely. Yeah. When, when I started fundraise, we're, we've, we've raised some venture capital as, as, as a business. And I realized very quickly how my fundraising background played a pretty critical role in, in raising venture capital, a very different audience than, than, than donors, but it was all about telling the story of, and, and our vision as a business, where we, where we thought we could take the business, but more importantly, how we thought we could actually help, you know, disrupt the industry and change the industry for, for better through the products and the tools that we were building. Uh, and I realized that like, th that came just so natural to me because for 15 years, all I would do was would tell stories with donors. All I would do is talk about, you know, the impact that we were making and, and the way that we were changing the world and so forth. And so I can, I can see how that was such a relevant sort of experience that transcended into your organization. I'm curious, as you started fundraising, like one of the, obviously as, as fundraisers, you know, we think about uh, specific kind of seasons uh, with with campaigning, whether it's Giving Tuesday, end of year, or any other sort of you know re relevant season for, for an organization. I'm curious if there's ever been a campaign that you've developed or launched that was maybe unnerving at first or brought you out of your comfort zone. And maybe I'll, I'll share a quick story that maybe will provide more context to this question. But I remember my time at uh, the last nonprofit was at Liberty North Korea. We were launching our big end of year campaign, but we did something totally different than we've ever done before. It was a campaign where we were asking people, instead, to, instead of donating, it wasn't an, an explicit ask, is we had laid out this big vision of some policy we wanted to change. And what we asked for, instead of a gift, give us your signature. Uh, and we're going to, you know, we're going to take this to Congress and we're going to try to pass some legislation. It was one of our best fundraising campaigns ever because not only did we, you know, provide a way to get people engaged in a very tangible, practical way to get involved on, on, on the organization, uh, very naturally, quickly after they're like, well, we want to give too, right? And so we didn't even have to really ask for it. Not all campaigns necessarily, uh, you have that ability to, to do that. But I was, I was really uncomfortable going into end of year 
launching a campaign that wasn't explicitly asking people to give. Instead, it was more of a, of a talent and time kind of ask than a resource ask. And I was, I was hesitant about it, but it was, ended up being one of our better campaigns. And so curious if there's anything like that that uh, you've worked on uh, in your experience at the organization. Yeah, um, similar, right? So um, and uncomfortable is, is strong for me because I'm like, to me, it's all very comfortable when you're trying to help somebody else's love. Like, <laughs> yeah, we're just going to do this. How can you tell me no? Yeah. How can you tell any of us no with this work? But I think in the similar vein, it was, I started here in January of 2020. So, right, I was like thrown into the lion's den three months pre-COVID, et cetera. And we also, prior to that, had launched the soft phase of a capital campaign. So talk about trying to bring in regular operational dollars as well as, you know, in tandem, a $20 million capital campaign, because we really wanted to change the way in which we serve our guests. So COVID taught us a lot about that. I mean, in hindsight, right, in retrospect, it was like a huge blessing that we were able to learn so much from COVID in terms of safety and health, et cetera, and how to really do isolation well. But our entire facility has changed uh, the way that we service our guests, meaning we used to have a 113 bed dorm for single men who would come in experiencing homelessness. Okay, 113 people in one room. I can't even sleep with my husband who snores. I'm like, no thanks, You know, I need my space. And, <laughs> and think about it, right? You've got such a myriad of people in there, some experiencing addiction, some who have extreme mental illness, some who are just grumpy, some who just don't, no, nobody wants to be there in the first place, right? So we said, how can we make this more dignified? So through this capital campaign, we completely revamped our building. And now we've got two people in a room, two people in a room on the other side, and they're sharing a bathroom. Now, to say in terms of fundraising for that, that was comfortable, it was not at all because we have to still make these asks to say, you know, we have to keep the lights on here. So like the non-sexy asks, right? We have a $7.5 million operational yeah. budget. P.S. We also need another 20 mil over here to do some other things. But, but again, if you mm -hmm. say, know your audience, know your why, it makes it a lot less uncomfortable. Yeah, no, absolutely. Don't go away. When our episode returns, Beth explains how they are disrupting the age-old generation of why someone is homeless and how Mel Trotter Ministries better serves those who are. Well, you got to stay tuned. And now, enjoy this segment sponsored by Fundraise, the world's most innovative and friendly nonprofit fundraising platform. Nonstop Nonprofit recently took our podcast on the road to Next After's 2022 NIO Summit. At the conference, I had a chance to catch up with Dana Snyder, founder and CEO at Positive Equation. Listen in as Dana shares about how creating an impactful mission for your donors can build an overall movement for your organization. Dana, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. How are things going? Things are great. I mean, I'm sitting here with you, Justin. Come on. Uh, and we're in Kansas City. Kansas City. <laughs> what a place. What a place. What can be greater than some good barbecue? <laughs> That's true. Uh, how's the conference been so far? It's been great. I think, honestly, my favorite thing is now that we're all back in person is just to see each other yeah. and be able to have the in-person conversations instead of in Zoom. Like, you can be semi-distracted or like I got to jump to the next call and you're like or my dog's doing something on the couch across from me right but like we're able to be here and just hang out in person and I love this event in particular because I'm obsessed with data mm. and optimization and yep. so everything that they talk about is my jam yeah I was I was uh, talking to the team and this is definitely my favorite conference of in the industry and it's also like so practical right yes. like it's there's like every speaker has like very practical things yes. to share. And so you walk away and you're going to get something super valuable. Um, yeah. your, your talk, Mission to, um, mission to Movements. <laughs> uh, talk to us about... It's what a tongue twister. It is, a it is. Talk to us about the meaning. Like, what, what's the like thesis behind uh, 
um, you're talking. This is also, I think, your podcast name. Is it that is. Yes. Yeah, Missions to Movements. Yeah. yeah. So I talk try to and, can, you, can you get the theme there? Yeah, it's the branding yeah, of what I'm I trying do. to do? I do, I do. <laughs> so the idea of the concept of Missions to Movements, and really my focus is in the social media space and just really overall the digital ecosystem of like what your organization is doing, is how can you make sure that what you're saying online can translate to an individual donor to really create an impactful mission for them and therefore builds an overall movement for your organization. So the example that I gave during my talk was talking about Dance Marathon. That's how I started my philanthropy journey. Yeah. And I think they did such a beautiful job as we were 18 year olds, right? And we were learning about giving so young and we were so excited, but like, how did they do that? So I really like went back to just my roots of starting that and understanding, okay, like what was my experience? How did that happen? Because I wasn't, I wasn't looking to give. I wasn't looking to get involved with a charity that I knew literally nothing about. So how did they move me from this like one-time maybe donor to this obsessed college student in this program with an amazing experience to now 13, 14, 15, only how many years later to <laughs> now like every time I see their organization, their cause, their logo, I'm going to continue to give. Yeah. So was that, that moment, the dance marathon moment, was that something that like, because it, it, it happens like once a, month, a year, right? Like it's, it's... It happens once a year, but it's in, I think currently still over like 100 plus universities all over the yeah, country. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We have a few of them actually that like raise on fundraise. Oh, cool. And, and so that's really cool. Is that, is that really what, is that your why of like how you got into to nonprofits? Was that what introduced you to it or was there something else that happened? I mean, I think maybe subconsciously I grew up in church and I grew up going on mission trips. Okay. Not that I really understood the nonprofit like organization yeah, yeah. connection when you're in middle school, yeah. right? But the sense of giving, I think, was always there. But I think Dance Marathon was the first time that I truly understood, oh, there's an organization that impacts this hospital, that impacts this little girl that I love. Yeah, absolutely. And then that's kind of what made it come full circle. Was the, like, you know, because, like, Dance Marathon, people are having a great time, right? Yeah. And so was it also, like, oh, wow, like, charity can be cool. It could be fun. Like, yes. was, that, was that something that, like, also kind of, like, intrigued you into, like, the industry? Yeah, and you know what's so funny about Dance Marathon is... We at the time were very small. Night on at University of Central Florida, go Knights representing, which there was actually a crowd in my session that is from UCF, which oh, is no amazing, way. that like hollered in the back. What's fascinating is we were struggling at the time. I mean, this was back in 2008. Okay. We were struggling to get past like raising 50 grand as students. And UF was raising a million plus dollars. And wow. we're like, what are they doing? Like, how are they doing this? We went to their event, and us in Orlando, I think it was different that we are a college inside of a major metropolitan town. Gainesville is not necessarily the case. Like, UF is what holds the glue, I feel like, of Gainesville together. Yeah. Their event was so simple. The games that they had, they were doing, like, four square. Oh, they wow. weren't having to bring in, like, crazy musicians or comedians or talent. It was just really creating community within the participants. Hmm. And we were like, are we overthinking this to be too complicated? Like, do we just literally go back to what makes us have fun as kids? Yeah. And now the university is raising 1.5, wow. 2 million That's annually. Amazing. And yeah, and it's, it's a, I think what's interesting is how much we can overcomplicate things in our mind because we're so inundated in like the day-to-day -day minutia of what we do versus like, let's just take a step back. And I love learning by experience of what others yeah. are doing. Yeah, we had this. Uh, we had this like saying at Invisible Children when I was there. 
that in order to like to get someone to donate, you had to get them to cry or you had to get them to laugh first, then cry, yes. then donate. Yes. And so whenever we were launching a new campaign or whatever you know was happening, it, that was like the formula we would use. Is like I totally forgot you worked there. Jason Russell was on my podcast, and he brilliant. Oh yeah. Storyteller. Yeah, oh yeah. He is. He is. It's like he's like on a totally different level yeah. of, of storytelling. <laughs> okay, so a lot of nonprofits that, I, that I, I've talked with think like, oh, like movements, like that's for like a different kind of organization, a, tip, a different type of nonprofit. You know, like we, we're, there's just a, like a stiffness to a lot of nonprofits. Yeah. And so do you encounter that in, in your consulting and in working with organizations of like, no, like you, movements are for you too. Yeah, I think there's a stigma around what a movement is like. It's the ALS ice bucket challenge, right? And yeah. that's a movement. That's not true. Like you can have like mini movements in what you're doing to make a greater impact. So I think it's just the perception of the word can get this cause. But it's really like if you look at the definition of a movement, it's really like, are you creating an impact and a change in your specific cause area of what you're doing and what you're advocating for? It doesn't mean every single person and everybody on all the news channels need to be talking about what you're doing for it to be considered to be a movement. And I think we get caught up in like this press media notion of, we're not successful if we're not breaking into CNBC and Fox and CNN, right? right? That we're not creating a movement and that's not true because it yeah. could be a micro dependent upon what you're doing. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's like, it's it's a groundswell too. I mean, it, it takes yeah. time to build like a, if you get to a point where you have a big movement, like Invisible Children, we had, we had a huge movement. Yeah. But it was like I remember seven, you guys on my college campus. Yeah, and it was, it was seven years of touring the country, yeah. right? Sending like high school students all over the, all over the country, going school to school to school to yeah. school. Uh, so it, it, you have to put in the work. But what was interesting there too with you guys is you also went for a younger generation. Yeah, our our uh, like our ICP or like ideal donor was 16 years old. Yeah, that was like that was what we built our. Which I don't think anyone, or I'm not gonna say anybody, but I think it's very rare that people think about, oh, I'm gonna go for in this case Gen Z now. Yeah, yeah. Because they think, oh, but it's the boomers is where it's at. Yeah. And it's, you know, the reason why we focused on, on such a young demographic was like twofold. One is like, we think we can make charity cool for better mm-hmm. or for worse. There's, yeah. you know, lots of, lots of things that like bad things have come from invisible children. Uh, but that was like initially, can we make charity cool? Yeah. Um, and if a 16 year old cares, you know, about what's happening in, in Uganda, their parents are going to care. Right. Right. Because they're, they're going to be excited right. that their kid is thinking about something much He's larger than themselves. Excited about philanthropy. And so that's, yeah. what, that's into what happening was it was like the younger generation became like our doorway into yeah. the boomers. Do you see, I know this is supposed to be you interviewing <laughs> <That's all right. laughs> yeah. Do you see a big shift just because you guys get so much data with what you do in terms of generational giving and how we're giving? I think the current sector is so used to large, substantial gifts that they rely on all the time. But as a millennial, I mean, my husband and I, we are not currently preparing to give large sums or create an endowment. More so, create, we would like to be monthly donors to multiple organizations, maybe giving smaller, but giving for a long, substantial amount of time. Do you see a big shift of that happening in like education to orgs? Yeah, I mean, I think like one, one thing that we see is organizations are like super hungry to diversify like their funding. And, um, and you know, it's at the like the top, like 2% of giving it's like, it's very crowded. Right. And there's only so many foundations. I mean, there's, there's a ton of money, but like, it's, it's very competitive. Yeah. 70, 75% of giving comes from households and so many organizations don't prioritize household giving, but we are starting to see organizations really build these, like what, what, what we're terms we're seeing are like consumer facing 
like giving yeah. programs, yeah. which is spot on because I mean, you've got, you know, 300 million people here in the States uh, yep. to build a program around. Yep. And, and one of the things is we are, we're seeing, you know, average gift size, like for, from this like demographic of donors hovering like around a hundred bucks. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see kind of like over the next decade, what happens. I mean, there's a lot of wealth transfer happening, yes. uh, you know, within, within the millennial generation. Uh, that are going to probably become, you know, larger, major donors. Yeah. But I think an organization to be successful and to grow needs to have a very solid annual fund program that's targeting young donors who can give 50, 100 yeah. bucks. Yeah. And I think I had a really interesting conversation with the birthday party project this year. Okay. Um, they, and during COVID, they said, okay, a lot of other things are slowing down for us. Let's redo our brand. Hmm. They completely redid their branding. They look so professional. It's fun. It's vibrant. It's bold. And that attracted, A, new donors, but B, large international corporate donors. Oh, wow. Because it just completely leveled up their look and their feel. Yeah. And so I think it's also investing in, we are so used to as consumers, the Amazon of things, the one-two-click, right, donate. Yeah. We're so used to going to these for-profit companies that have beautiful sites that we just kind of expect the same thing which is like tools like you guys that make it really easy to create something beautiful because that's what I think the expectations are also of a younger donor base. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like if a donor goes to a website and, you know, can't figure out how to donate or can't like navigate the site or it looks yeah. like it was built in 1999, donor's going to drop off. Like it's not, yeah. you're not going to convert that individual. That was part of what I talked about yesterday was like, okay, so you have this personalized donor's journey, right? From awareness, consideration, decision. And if you're working so hard and building all this content to get me like through the awareness, consideration, I'm educated, I'm excited, that at the very last step, if I'm like signing up for something and I can't do it, or if it's difficult, yeah. or if there's friction, it's just like, you're gone. Totally, totally, yeah. And it's it's funny how organizations will try to really you know outsource that to volunteers, like, the, like web development, brand building. Yeah. These are things that like, yeah, Jason Russell actually said this. We had him on our podcast too. He said like one of the most important things you can do as a nonprofit is invest as much money as possible in your story. Yeah. And because that pays dividends, yes. right? And like most organizations have a very long-term game to play. Yep. And if we're just focused on like, you know, a quick win here and there, it's not going to be sustainable. If there's one thing that somebody hears from this, please hire a social media digital role for your team, aka ideally they can tell stories yeah. through your social channels. But to invest in that person and invest in giving them the resources that they need to do their jobs. I think we think, okay, I'm going to hire this manager, but I'm not going to give them any budget for a management platform, for content building. Oh, we need a travel budget so they can go on trips with us. Or uh, there's no ad spend for them to test running ads. But, but you like, go do your job. <laughs> but Dana, I mean, an intern can come in and do all your social media, right? Oh, of course they could. <laughs> oh. Last question and uh, a series of fun questions here. Well, these are all been been fun, but um, so when I wanted to go back to one thing that you said is is you know, you're creating all this content uh, for for social media and you're you're pushing the donor kind of through this journey and then they like land on the site uh, and it doesn't match you know what everything else that just just happened. How do organizations dial in sort of this like cohesive approach? Whether they're acquiring donors from Facebook or from LinkedIn or any other social media platform, what's like the best strategy for organizations to really build a cohesive donor journey? Such a good question. So what I've found, I do a lot of work in ads. 
And what I found is there needs to be, exactly like you're saying, that consistency in that branding. So if there's imagery and colors and visuals that you're showcasing in your content and your ads, your website needs to reflect that. Literally, it could be verbatim the exact same photo. That's actually worked really well because then that donor, that supporter knows that they're in the right place. I think to not complicate it is I always share, and I do this personally in my business, is really focus on a primary and a secondary social channel. Do not try and be everywhere. I literally have, I'm not on Twitter. I stopped trying to be on Twitter because to do it properly, it takes a lot of time. I have a tweet that's pinned to the top that says, I'm not here. <laughs> Find me on LinkedIn and I have like three click, like links of resources. But people know, oh, okay, she's not on this platform, but I let them know I'm not there. And then you can find me somewhere else. Yeah. So simplify your life. Focus on like where you truly think your audience is. Focus on creating really great content that also is true to the business of that platform. So when you focus on less platforms, you can think about, okay, what is Adam from Instagram talking about in his weekly updates, right? Yeah. What can I gauge from him that's really important? He's the head of Instagram. What are they looking to do and grow as a business? Oh, okay, I should be creating more video content. I should be creating more reels. I should be engaging in my messages. Um, and then really focus on building a community in the platforms that you choose. Got it. Awesome, thank you. Great, great feedback. All right, now some questions. Now there's no right or wrong uh, answers, <laughs> but there are, are some wrong answers. Um, okay, so first off, digital reading or an actual book? Actual book. What's your favorite most recent book you've read? Oh my gosh. Okay, uh, Kristen Hanna, I love all of her books. And uh, what was the most recent one? Ooh, Four Wins. Four Wins. So, so good. Four Wins. Good historical fiction vibe. Histor okay, all right. Uh, pizza or salad? Pizza. Pizza, nice. Beach or the mountains? You get to live somewhere for the rest of your life. Ooh, that's really tough. I'm a Pisces, but I'm a skier. <laughs> so you're going to say mountains? <laughs> oh, you're going to be in the snow the rest of your life. I would say mountains. Mountains, okay. Uh, football or football? Uh, football. Football? Yeah. No, throwing. No, throwing. Throwing. Oh, okay, so football. Yeah, football. Football. American football. American football. Okay. Yeah, it's, yeah you're... Yeah. Are you more... You're, it sounds like you're more college football than pro football. Yeah, I mean, although I will say go Bucks because we have Brady for another <laughs> year. <laughs> uh, dogs or cats? Dogs. Dogs. Do you like cats? Uh, I used to have a cat. Uh, definitely dogs, though. Okay. My yeah. puppy's the best. Yeah, me too. Funnel cake or cheesecake? Cheesecake. And the last one, the Goonies or the Sandlot? Oh, gosh. Sandlot. 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 Awesome. <laughs> Dana, thanks so much for joining. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to Nonstop Nonprofit. Before our fundraise-sponsored break, Beth was sharing about what they learned through COVID and how that shifted their ask to their donors. Now, let's get back to the conversation. I'm also curious, you know, I think uh, homelessness is such a, it's a, such a big problem in the United States. And I've noticed, just especially during being involved in so many different uh, causes and nonprofits around, around the U.S., for some reason, I feel like homelessness has this like stigma, right? Where for individuals who haven't experienced it or aren't going through it, you know, it's there's this stigma of like, well, why why are they on the streets? Like, why aren't they working? You know, why are they lazy or whatever? Like the excuse may be, like, I'm not going to give them money. They're going to buy alcohol and drugs. I'm curious how you guys overcome that because obviously that's a generalization. I can see how that could potentially impact new individuals from from giving to an organization like yours. So, how do you guys tell this story to help supporters understand the importance of your work? And then further, how do you show the impact? How do you help your 
donors understand the sustainable impact that you're making as, as an organization yeah, on this issue? Thank you for that question, because you are exactly right. That is the perception and the misconception, right? Which is that everybody who's homeless, they just must be making a choice. And if they would just go out and pull themselves up by the bootstraps, get a job, problem solved, not even close, right? That is such a small percentage of the folks whom we serve, especially in this day and age with inflation, with lack of affordable housing here in West Michigan is a real problem. Mm. And so what we're doing is more of an educational like awareness program, right? It's like, hey, I know you guys think this. I, I'm a big believer in like lean into the elephant in the room just as you did, right? I, yep. I go into every room I can speak about and people will say, well, you just serve people who X, Y, Z. I'm like, that's not it at all. Let me tell you, I understand why you think that. Let me also tell you why it's so, so wrong. And data, right? Data backs it up. But again, going back to yeah. systems in place and the right CRMs and the right data and the right uh, inputs that will help us then have the right outputs to do the storytelling, to do the marketing. Without that, it's kind of like people are going, well, I only see what I see and I only know what I think that I understand, none of which can be backed yeah. up. So that's how we go about it. And we really talk about all of the wraparound services because we, you know, this is going to sound derogatory, but people old school think three hots in a cot, right? We'll give them $2.39. They'll mm-hmm. give them some gross mashed potatoes and put them on a cot. And again, this is all we can do, but Hey, we're checking a box here. We're, we're fulfilling our duties as human beings and as Christians. So now we're good. It's so much more. It's so much yeah. more. People are living paycheck to paycheck, you know? Yeah. I've, I've heard, yeah, I've heard, I've heard it's, you know, like a lot of people are one paycheck away from, from, you know, being, being homeless. I think, you know, the kind of piggybacking on what you just said there, I think this is why I believe marketing should be a program expense, not a overhead expense, especially on, on an issue like you're working on. And when I was at Liberty North Korea, no one, no one really knew what was happening in North Korea. Everyone thought that North Korea was our enemy state. It was the axis of evil. It was crazy dictators, nuclear weapons. Why would we ever donate a dollar to a country that has been perceived this way for so long? And so we knew that in order for us to actually create, you know, port and resources for an an issue that was one of the worst human rights violations in the world, that we would have to first peel back the layer, the onion, and talk about why North Korea should not be perceived this way. And so we spent at the at the time over 50% of our budget for the first two years on just telling that story and just spreading awareness, generating awareness, changing people's hearts and minds, because we knew if we did that, then we would be able to actually make a bigger impact on, on the issue. And so the question for you here is, is it hard at your organization to generate the resources you need to continue to tell the stories and to continue to demystify these wrong perceptions? Uh, or do you feel like you have enough resources to do that for the organization? Uh, I feel like it's a work in progress. You know, we have a hundred and we've been in existence since 1900, Meltrider Ministry. So we clearly have name, recogni- name oh, recognition, wow. right? Um, the yeah. problem is some people recognize that name from the old school way of programming around here. And that's not how we do things in all 2023. Um, and so I do feel like we have enough resources for us. I, I guess the, the thing that we continue to sort of bang our heads up against a brick wall is how do we actually say the information in so many different ways that it actually lands, right? How do we actually market to all of the audiences collectively saying the same thematic you know, information? Like we don't want to confuse people clearly because clarity is what it's all about. But yet, yeah. how do you sort of deconstruct, undo, whatever those words are, what people have had in their mind for so many years? And that's the thing is we have an, an aging donor database, as many organizations do. And, you know, they've known what they've known for giving for 30 years. Um, my daughter, who's 25, I don't think she knows where her mailbox is at her apartment, right? She has no idea what, <laughs> what this looks very, very different to her. And she cares, as we all know, it's so true. I'm watching it. She grew up in the faith, but she's like, mom, I don't see what I was taught as a kid. I want to know 
that somebody on the streets, like what I do, if I give them $5 every month, I want to know how it helps them. So impact, impact, impact. And so we do, we share the numbers, but for me, it's more about faces and names and stories because people can read data. It's kind of, mm. kind of boring at the end of the day. Let's be honest. I mean, that doesn't really wow people. It's necessary yeah. to substantiate, but what sells, if you will, what people stop and go, oh my goodness, I had no idea is when they say, wait a minute, a family lives there. You guys, if a family becomes homeless in West Michigan right now, there's no place for them to go. That answer is you're right. There isn't. That's, that's the wow factor. Yeah. I'm like, it could be your neighbors. It could be your sister. It could be your family. Think about that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, giving is such an emotional experience, you know, for, for individuals and, and donors. And, you know, a lot of times organizations will, will lead with data, you know, like there's a hundred thousand homeless people living in, in Grand Rapids or, Hey, there's this lady named Sally and she could really use your help. That message is going to resonate with more people. It's tangible. I can understand one person. It's hard to understand what does a hundred thousand people look like living in the streets and how does my $5 actually make a difference for a hundred thousand people. And so I totally agree with you. Data is to substantiate the impact and to inform decisions. It's internal, right? It's for, for you as an organization to use, to make good business decisions. But when it relates to fundraising, it's got to be about the story. It's got to be about the individual. I, I take that a step further even and, and say that uh, there's this this old conversation in the nonprofit space that the donor is the hero. I think uh, I don't believe the donor is the hero. I believe the donor is is an amazing character in this story. But the individual receiving the help, the individual overcoming their challenges, coming off of the, out of the streets, that's the true hero. They've been enabled. They've been given the opportunity to uh, overcome their challenges. And so I think that it's, it's yeah, it's so important to, to tell the story in a way that represents all parties in, in an equitable manner, but definitely agree with you that it's, it's about the story. It's not about, you know, that the data point, that's not what gets, gets people to, to actually give. Beth, you have a lot of experience in fundraising in the corporate world. Be curious if there's any advice you'd like to offer for new fundraisers coming in, whether they're coming from corporate, whether they're just getting started in their career, any advice that you'd like to share to help them get started that would maybe help accelerate their learning curve as as they start fundraising for, for their organization? Yeah, I had to learn this um, in my early 20s too when I was in sales. And, and for me, it's the biggest lesson is to network is to get yourself in mm. so many different groups, right? That it's sort of, you will find the crossover, you will find the intersection, but kind of sit back and feel like, well, I'm going to go in the office eight to five. Uh, I'm going to like be in front of my CRM all day. I'm going to call this person. I'm going to write a thank you note. It's so much different than if you are in right grassroots, like get out there really. Like when I see our development team and they're in the office, I'm like, I don't want to see you. I love you guys. I don't want to see you right now. I want you in relationship <laughs> with your donors. I want you to say, Hey, I care about you. Let me tell you what I just saw. Real time updates, huge, huge. Because if I am somebody who is being solicited and I am right, we all are in some way, shape or form. I, I want to know that I am unique. And the only way to let me know that you feel like I'm unique is for you uniquely to speak to me. And so I don't, I'm not really into, I know it's a necessary evil. I mean, don't get me started on direct mail. Yes, it's necessary, but, but I don't, I personally don't like to be one of many. I want to be one of one. And I want to know that you, you see yeah. me at, and you understand my heart for giving and you understand my connection to your organization, because if you don't take the time to get to know me, I may not take the time to give you my money. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I totally agree with that. I, yeah, I was chuckling a little bit because I think where I think the one to many works is more actually on like the guerrilla tactic style of, of fundraising. I, we did this really well at, at the first organization was at called Invisible Children, where we would literally go to any Apple store. We would travel all around the United States to spread awareness. 
And we were like, where are their mass computers? We went to libraries, Apple stores, and we changed the the home screen to <laughs> our, our banner to our website. And we it actually drove a ton of traffic and we would get new support all the time. We would hear about people donating that would say, hey, like this is so creative. I found your organization. It's so amazing. I'm going to contribute. So I'm all, also all about the like, the creative kind of grassroots guerrilla style, but nothing beats, you know, that one-to-one relationship building, especially if we're trying to beat donor churn, if we're trying to keep donors involved in organizations for the long haul, if we're trying to create lifelong donors, it's so important to build those relationships. And so thank you for that advice. I think that's, that is super, super helpful. Beth, I know you're busy. Uh, and so wish you the best of luck in, in, in your efforts. And uh, thank you so much for joining Nonstop Nonprofit to share your wisdom with us and, and our audience. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Beth. Thanks for listening to this episode of Nonstop Nonprofit. This podcast is brought to you by your friends at Fundraise, nonprofit fundraising software built by nonprofit people. If you'd like to continue the conversation, find me on LinkedIn or text me at 562-242-8160. And don't forget to get your next episode the second it hits the internets. Go to nonstopnonprofitpodcast.com and sign up for email notifications today. See you next time.